From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic forced Colorado to shift its tourism strategy away from the international traveler to people taking staycations. But that focus is changing this fall for a key reason. Some of our overseas traveler, they spend as much as $2,100 on average per person per trip. So we'd love to get some of those travelers back here into Colorado. We'll speak with the state's new tourism director about that, plus travel equity and sustainable tourism in the face of climate change. Then the search for the world's southernmost tree. And as Colorado Matters marks 20 years of sharing stories across the state, we reflect on moments that resonated with us, including memories of Amache. We looked like the enemy, although we weren't the enemy. We all knew we hadn't done anything, but the public didn't know. You can donate most vehicles to Colorado Public Radio, including cars, trucks, and motorcycles. And you can donate them in any condition, on one condition. The title has to be in your name. You'll also have to answer a few simple questions like, Where is your car? And when would you like us to pick it up? Simple work to make a big impact. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The pandemic hit the tourism industry hard here in Colorado. Travel spending was down 36% last year, but there's renewed hope heading into a winter ski season. You fall in love as soon as you come here. You know, hard work ethic, people get outdoors, things are real. When I was a little kid, I just wanted to ski every day. And Colorado has helped me make that happen. I often get the question, what's the most scenic ranch or what's the prettiest ranch in the state? And I said, well, just pull one out of a hat and I can guarantee you that the ranch you choose, you are going to be extremely happy with. That's from the state's latest marketing campaign, Do Colorado Right. Tim Wolf is the new director of the Colorado Tourism Office, and he joins me now. Hi, Tim. How are you, Nathan? Doing all right. So you've been on the job for just about two months now. I remember that there was a campaign that talked about having people in Colorado stay here, staycations, things like that. Talk about the differences we're seeing now with the pandemic lessening and things changing. How is that impacting how you're going about advertising Colorado to the rest of the country? We certainly had to pivot from our strategic plan you know, really abandoning the international traveler and and pivoting to the drive markets and and tours safety and local tourism. But now we're shifting back to the international strategies with the vaccination requirements for international travel starting November 8th. We see that as a big opportunity to try to, to drive some of those tourists back. And those tourists are some of our longest staying tourists up to two weeks at a time. And some of our overseas traveler, they spend as much as $2,100 on average per person per trip. And that was in 2019. So we'd love to get some of those travelers back here into Colorado. And if I'm not mistaken, there was about a 73% drop in travelers coming here from other countries. And like you said, they're spending up to five times more per person than someone who maybe comes from, let's say, Utah or, or Wisconsin or someplace like that, right? Well, that's exactly right. I think the number in overall tourism spending was even more. It was almost an 81% Mm. drop. 
with many of the flights completely canceled. And, you know, just recently we have some of our long travel from Canada and Mexico have returned and some of our long haul flights are taking a little bit longer to recover. Um, and then there's a number of other flights that aren't even there yet that are coming back in 2022. Flights like uh, United Airlines to London Heathrow and Tokyo and Munich and some of these other flights. So it's going to be kind of a ramp up approach. So you really are focusing on these international travelers and, and waiting for the time when when these visitors can come pouring back into the country and hopefully come to Colorado. Well, you're exactly right about that. And I don't know if it's going to be the pouring in part. Um, we would certainly okay. like to hope, but um, but we certainly are going to see a ramp up. Uh, you know, as the airlines can build up their capacity to be able to handle the travel, the lift load is is not going to be a, a kind of a light switch thing. It's going to kind of kind of be a slow increase. It's going to take some time. North America, we think, is going to recover by 2023 completely. But the overseas, we don't even see it fully recovering until 2024. So it will take some time. What I'm hearing is that this really is a ramp up, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is this kind of like build the plane as we fly it in terms of recovering uh, the, the tourism aspect here in Colorado? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's going to be a journey for sure. Some of the longer flights, uh, even Australia, will even lag a little bit further behind. So what we'll see is probably... You know, Mexico and Canada coming back quickly and more rapidly. And then again, followed by the overseas starting to gain momentum and, and then eventually getting back to full strength here in, in a couple of years. So you mentioned uh, Mexico, Canada. Are there other countries that you're targeting um, your outreach to? Yeah, certainly. The top spending markets for Colorado are, are typically the United Kingdom, Mexico, Australia, Canada, Germany. And we're also targeting France as well. Now, given the importance that you're putting on international travelers, bring it back home here to Colorado. How does all this compare to the local resident who chooses to visit places in Colorado? Comparing it to the local resident, um, our local residents know the value and the beauty of Colorado and visit it, uh, you know, frequently all, all of the time. What they may see, though, are, you know, as international travel comes back, is a little bit more activity on those Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, especially in the winter time. Uh, right now, you know, people see the high volume on the weekends, but the mountain towns really rely on that that midweek type of travel, especially the first couple of weeks of January when most of the America and United States are, are back in school, that that international traveler, you know, fills in that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and, and the residents as well as the, the community that serves them will, will definitely see that pick up as that travel returns. Before the pandemic, the Colorado travel industry brought in a record $24 billion in travel spending in 2019. That's dropped to about $15.5 billion last year, if I'm correct. That, that's still, that's a lot of money. But give us a sense of the importance of tourism to Colorado. It seems interconnected with so many things. Yeah, I mean, it's one of our largest industries. The state and local tax revenues that come in for that support so many different things in the community. Um, it was, you know, at the height, it was $1.5 billion and dropped 31% to $1 billion in state and local taxes. So that revenue is very important to the state. The other important thing is those jobs. 
we had 187,000 jobs in 2019, and that was scaled back, you know, almost 38 percent to 149,000 jobs. And we're seeing a recovery of those right now. From where we are right now, taking into account this past year, how things have changed so dramatically, what are some of the trends you're seeing in terms of tourism? I mean, I'm assuming what you had thought about tourism before the pandemic is very different than what you're thinking now. Is that fair to say? Um, Yes and no. I think one of the interesting things about tourism right now and what has happened is if you look across the state, the recovery pace is completely different in different areas of the state. In the front range, we're still we're still coming back. The city of Denver, Fort Collins, and these places on the front range are a little bit slow to recover. Colorado Springs has done a terrific job, and this last summer was actually a record summer for them with the opening of the Olympic Museum and some of the rebranding that's going on in Colorado Springs. They've just done a terrific job. Um, the drive-in market in Pagosa Springs and Telluride and and in the West and even in the mountains with the state travel, they've had uh, their, you know, tourism has, has rebounded a little bit quicker in those areas. So we just see different paces of recovery across the state. The one thing that, that's always going to be important for us, though, is to make sure that we take care of our trails and we watch our environment and know before you go. And And these types of programs that have been put in place, we're going to continue to carry forward. Sustainable travel and some of these other things are not only important to to us here that live in Colorado, but also uh, to people that visit. And even the international market looks to some of those trends. Well, that's the name of your outreach campaign, right? Do Colorado Right, you know, And, and it seems like a little bit of this campaign is 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 a sense of community, the sense of place, the sense of belonging, the sense of you're coming to a place that needs to be protected, that needs to be cared about, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, we want to continue the momentum and destination stewardship, the care for Colorado principles, the leave no trace behind programming. Uh, you know, it's one of the only networks in the state, the Colorado Tourism Office, where we can reach right out to the visitors and use and communicate the importance of those things to, to all of us. Is that something that is a focus for you all because of climate change, because of the things we're seeing here, not just in Colorado, but around the world? You know, it's important for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we want to take care of where we live. And destination stewardship is one of our pillars. And those care for Colorado principles are important. The leave no trace behind programming There's other things in other parts of the state that we're looking at in terms of protecting the trails, protecting the uh, the lighting Um, in terms of city lights. There's special places in Pagosa Springs and these other locations where, you know, people want to take photographs uh, at night without the city lights and these types of things. And, And we're looking at all of that. And it's just kind of restoring things to and reminding us of the beauty that they've had naturally and and where we'd like to continue to leave them for for generations to come. You were the general manager of the Historic Ground Palace and the Holiday Inn Express, both in downtown Denver. You also served on the Visit Denver Board of Directors. How has that experience informed your thinking as the Colorado Tourism Director, especially coming out of this pandemic? Those experiences have just been terrific in managing hotels. I've had the opportunity to manage hotels up in the Vail Valley in Colorado Springs, as well as the Front Range. 
and getting an idea of what these hotels, you know, how they drive their revenues, how they market, how they program, but also serving on the board of the, the local marketing organizations has given me an understanding of kind of what these areas and pockets of uh, professionals across the state, what they go through. And so now I, I feel like I can help support them and understand some of the regions, but also keep that open line of communication with, uh, you know, friends that I've worked with in the past and, and new friends in the future uh, to just continue the momentum for the whole state. How important are those partnerships with private businesses like the ski industry to make tourism outreach a success? I know that you've got these connections. How does that work with, with the outreach you're trying to provide uh, tourism here in Colorado? Well, Nate, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, one of the keys is to be partnerships with the ski industry. And we're coordinating monthly calls with the industry to understand what their needs are. And, you know, we, we get a choice of whether we're going to lead, partner, or advocate for whatever the issues are in those industries. Um, but one of the, the cool things about it is to understand what is important to them, but also to try to make sure that we're positioning our statements very similar to what they're doing. So that if you're in Germany and seeing ads from whether it be Vail or another city, or you're seeing it from the state, the messaging is going to be very nearly the same, which is going to really resonate with the international market and the domestic market in terms of what the values of Colorado are. So it really is, is almost you are our lockstep, it sounds like. We need to be as much as possible. You know, there's always, you know, different areas are going to market their areas differently, but we house all of these major, major brands. And so we're going to highlight those brands as much as we can, while those individual brands may highlight their own attributes. For example, Aspen is terrific in, in how they do their marketing approach. And that team there has their approach. Vail Resorts has their approach. But when we present our marketing for the state, we'll make sure, for example, in our ads that we have the gondolas that will show those jewels those brands and the, those highlights so that that way it reinforces, you know, maybe the other messaging that these other areas are doing as well. Now, I, I keep thinking of skiing. I think of hiking, things like that when I think of Colorado tourism. But I I think there's also a business traveler aspect to things, right? And, and I know that spending on business travel for things like conferences was also really down during the pandemic. What role does your office have in working to address that turndown? So someone coming into Denver with a suitcase as opposed to a pair of skis. Well, Nathan, you're, you're 100% right about that. And you kind of hit the nail on the head when I was mentioning that the pace of recovery is different for the front range as well as the rest of the state. You know, the business travel and conferences have generally been a reliable and large source of income for the front range. And during the height of the pandemic, it certainly has dropped off completely. In fact, you know, right now the Colorado Convention Center is only, you know, 55% fewer bookings in 2022 right now than it did for 2019. So basically we're behind pace in that business traveler. Business travel itself, just from the business travel component without that is, is also down almost 70% in the, and still forecasted. Hmm. Um, and so some of the things that we're trying to do is to work with, uh, we have meetings and events incentives where meeting planners can apply for grants for first time meetings or meetings that are at risk of canceling because of COVID. 
uh, to try to bring these meetings back. And so we're working closely with the industry to make sure that they're aware of these opportunities. So, so how many of these grants have you, you issued? And are you seeing an impact from this? So far, we've had 43 successful applications for a number of events. We've had conferences uh, at the Gaylord. We've also had a number of conferences throughout the state. And we've so far have been able to, to issue out grants of about seven hundred to $750,000 to date. Our cap is about $10 million. And so we've, we're off to a good start. You know, we hit a little bit of headwinds with the Delta variant, but we're out there promoting this type of opportunity for these meetings and uh, events. So we're seeing it work. Are you also working on travel equity or cultural inclusion, Tim, to make sure the state is accessible to everyone? Um, that's a great question, Nathan. Uh, it's something that we're certainly exploring. We are reaching out to a number of different organizations to to make sure that we do everything we can to provide an experience for people from all walks of life. Um, And so that's something that uh, we're certainly looking at in terms of all of the resources that we have, including photography, but also outreach to the communities. Um, We're circling around the state to talk to communities about different things to uh, to make sure that we have opportunities and experiences for everyone. Given the demand on infrastructure, major corridors like I-70 in the high country, you know how they can get backed up on the weekends and even during the week sometime, uh, places like Rocky Mountain National Park. Is there ever uh, too much of a good thing when it comes to tourism? How does crowd control, uh, so to speak, play into your thinking as the state's tourism director? You know, that that weighs very heavily. Um, I think that that is part of the experience, and sometimes it's not a favorable part of the experience, and we recognize that. So one of the things that we're looking at is looking at possible technologies where we can make sure that we can communicate to people um, opportunities that may be less traveled at certain times. And so to try to balance things out a little bit, to try to find alternative modes, we have a number of different programs out there. We've added the Rocky Mountaineer luxury train that is basically from Denver all the way to Moab as a tourism opportunity. Um, So there's different things that we're looking at, but we're also looking at technology with various departments here in the Office of Economic uh, Development, including outdoor recreation, where, you know, we're talking with the people in the Forest Service about what can we do to, uh, to help partner to balance out some of the demands in certain peak areas at peak times. So that's certainly one of the big things on our radars to try to figure out the best way and the best technologies to be able to communicate opportunities out to to guests for experiences. Can you you go deeper on that? What do you mean technology? Uh, Like apps or things like that? Um, it may be an app, maybe, maybe QR codes could be a, a number of different technologies. We're looking at all of those types of things. We're looking at our welcome centers and technology to be able to communicate kind of real-time information out. You know, when you go to the airport, you can kind of see what's going on with the parking garage, or you can hear about updates with the line at uh, the security and these types of things. So there's technologies out there that help with that. So the question is, is what kind of technologies can we put into play on a bigger scale to try to help balance that out? 
because, of course, everyone knows Colorado's beautiful, so we're going to have people coming in no matter what it seems. <laughs> no, you're you're 100% right about that. I mean, there's always going to be those top spots, but it's some of those lesser-known local favorites, and, and, as well as restaurants and different businesses that, you know, we want to highlight those small entrepreneurs also to, to give them an opportunity to showcase uh, a Colorado experience. To spread it out, to space it out, it sounds like. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. Tim Wolf directs the Colorado Tourism Office. Tourism is one of the state's top industries, and it's working to rebound from the pandemic shutdown. Colorado's housing crisis has moved beyond the big cities and ski towns. Even in communities like Grand Junction, once considered affordable, people are priced out. For older women, often on fixed incomes, the threat of losing their home can be especially terrifying. As part of CPR's series on housing instability, Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg visits a program that gives them a place to rebuild their lives. Cindy Maney is standing over a small table in her shared living room smiling as she looks down at her latest finished puzzle, bursting with bright colors and whimsy. Beautiful butterflies and an assortment of flowers. Fitting the pieces together relaxes her. I like doing it. I like to see progress. Making incremental progress has been baked into the Golden Girls program since it began a year ago. It temporarily houses women 50 and older, up to five at a time, in a simple, spacious apartment run by the Joseph Center, a nonprofit that supports low-income people in a variety of ways. When I ask Maney what makes this better than a typical shelter, the 74-year-old does not hesitate. Everything. (laughs) Including that she can just be here, inside, all day if she wants. Meany, who's had a stroke and does not want to talk about how she lost her housing, says one of the worst parts about shelter life was having to leave during the day, just walking around, nowhere to go. It's like being in twilight zone. But here, where she's been since July, she feels safe and supported. Oh, the staff and everybody here is wonderful. They do everything they can to help you especially my Nikki. Nikki Tarr, coordinator for the Golden Girls, who's worked with many older women who've lost housing for the first time in their lives. A lot of them are very beat and depressed and are very traumatized, gone through a lot. Mental health issues, partner abuse. Some have lost a spouse and have never lived alone before. There have been 30 Golden Girls so far, and Tar always tries to show them that change is possible. She too lost housing about a decade ago, and she and her dog slept at friends' places and in her car. After several months, a local charity helped her rent a small trailer. And it was easier back then because housing was cheap, but it's so much harder now. That was the reality facing former Golden Girl Stephanie Fisk earlier this year. The paperwork alone on the low-income rental assistance was very boggling and very, very, very time-consuming. When Fisk arrived in Grand Junction, she had just lost her home in a California wildfire, and her 22-year relationship had ended. Her daughter, Kara Taylor, wanted to take her in, 
but couldn't, because she lives in low-income housing, with strict rules about guests. Taylor was so worried about her mom's safety that at one point she considered moving into a shelter with her. And I do home care, so I was trying to think, like, what am I going to, you know, take her along with me on visits while I do my home care visits? And she can just wait in the car and we'll just go back to the shelter and sleep at night. It was like every option just seemed terrible. Until they found the Golden Girls. Her mom, Stephanie Fisk, says it was a stepping stone to living on her own in what she calls her sanctuary. Here's my room, and it's got its own little bathroom. A large 1968 mobile home on its own lot, bought with money she got from selling her burnt-up property in California. It was a complex process, but this program helped Fisk make it through. The Golden Girls was golden to me anyway. She's one of its biggest success stories. But the path forward is not as clear for some women in the program. Still, Cindy Maney says she's not afraid because of the help she's getting from the staff here. They just comfort you and let you know it's going to be okay, and you really feel that. She doesn't know where she'll land after this. But these places are a lifesaver. More, please, more for people. The local housing authority says the wait for low-income housing can be up to three years in Mesa County. But it's gone quicker for many Golden Girls, and they can keep getting support from the program even after their time there is up. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Mm. You can read about this program and other stories about housing instability at CPR.org. And this special series continues this week right here on Colorado Matters. When we come back, a unique expedition in search of the world's southernmost tree. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel, live in Newcastle. Treeline is familiar to people in our state. That's the altitude trees won't grow above in the mountains. There are also global tree lines. As you near the North and South Poles, trees yield to extreme conditions. We now know precisely where that is in the Southern Hemisphere because scientists have identified the world's southernmost tree— Brian Buma trekked to that tree. He's an associate professor of integrative biology at the University of Colorado, Denver. Brian, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, drum roll, please. Where did you find <laughs> Earth's southernmost tree? It is a long ways away. It is on the southern headwall of Cape Horn, uh, Isla Hornos itself, which is the southernmost island in the Cape Horn archipelago. So extreme south of Chile. And that's the southern tip of South America. Southern tip of South America, yeah. When you're standing on the top of that island, on the mountain that's the top of that island, it's nothing but water to the south with Antarctica only a few hundred miles away. Okay, what kind of tree is this? 
It's this tree. It's called a. The scientific name is Nothofagus betuloides, which is a mouthful. It's a called a Magellanic beech, uh, but it's not actually a beech tree. Just early European explorers had this habit of assigning common names they were used to to plants in the southern hemisphere. It's a uniquely southern hemisphere species. It's got broad leaves, like flat leaves, kind of about the size of a thumbnail, but it's an evergreen tree, mm -hmm. so it doesn't actually drop its leaves in the winter, their winter. Uh, uh, what's the scientific name again? Nothofagus betuloides. Nothofagus. <laughs> I'm assuming it's a very hardy tree being being down that far, yes? It's it's pretty tough. This this whole genus is actually fairly tough. This whole group of trees called Nothofagus. Yeah, they have to put up a th with a lot. It's not terribly cold down there. Um, Ilohornos, uh, the islands of Cape Horn, never really get that cold. It's much colder here in the winter. There's only a, about maybe 20 days a year where it even gets to freezing, uh, much less stays cold. But it's incredibly, incredibly windy. So they, they put up with a lot. Um, it's a pretty intense spot. So it's not so much the cold that's impacting tree line down there, but it's it's wind and things like that? Yeah, it's primarily wind in the southern hemisphere. That that way down in the southern tip of South America, you're into what sailors call the roaring 40s and the furious 50s and the screaming 60s. There are these latitudes where it's it's constantly windy. And uh, Ilohornos has winds over 45 miles per hour, about seven eight percent of the time. So you know, multiple mm. times a day, you're going to get wind gusts that high, and over 120. Miles per hour is not uncommon in any storm. So we had uh, hurricane force winds for two days in a row uh, while we were huddling in tents on that island just in the few weeks we were there. So uh, with all that said, talk about this tree. What does it look like? Yeah, so the trees on this island, their their look is almost Dr. Seussian. It's, it's a very bizarre place, and it's because of that wind. So if you get into a protected spot of the island you'll get trees that can be pretty tall, like 20 feet tall, but they're all twisted. They're in like corkscrew shapes and it makes it real fun to climb. You can just kind of walk up these corkscrews that, and walk out on these branches that are all twisted from the wind. The southernmost tree is actually hanging out in a bit more of an exposed spot. So it's about 15 feet long, but it's only about waist, knee to waist height. So it grows up about two feet tall and then it grows perfectly flat along um, the surface of the ground or just above the surface of the ground um, for so another completely bent. <laughs> it sounds it's completely like, bent. Completely it's like, bent. It's like a pipe cleaner bent at a 90 degree angle. Yeah. But these, these trees, they don't look like the Krumholtz trees like you'd find on the mountains around here where you get a whole, they look sort of like bushes. Yeah. These just look like trees. They're just bent over, which is, it's really so, strange looking. So you found this tree. W what are you hoping to learn now that you've, you've been there and you've looked at it? What are you hoping to learn? Well, there's a, there's a couple reasons to do this expedition. One was scientific, and, and that calls back to what you brought up at the beginning, which is tree line. Uh, you know, global tree lines are really important places to track climate change because they are a easy, uh, tangible sort of place where you can see uh, habitat and plant life and the environment shifting as the environment warms. Typically, they're limited by temperature. So as climate, you know, increases, increases in temperature, you'd expect to see tree lines going up around the world, mm -hmm. uh, you know, increasing carbon. But that's actually not what we see. Only in about 50% of tree lines around the world do we actually see a lot, you know, substantial forest expansion, which is kind of surprising. And so we need to figure out why these things move and why they don't, so that we can better incorporate 
vegetation into our knowledge of climate change. So that's the scientific reason. There's also a communication issue. Uh, these sorts of big like climate change effects, like forests on the move, they're they're kind of hard to communicate. You know, they're kind of hard to wrap your head around, especially especially yeah. if you're a kid that hasn't been to Treeline in Colorado, if you're not lucky enough to get up there. And so saying that is kind of abstract, but everybody's seen a tree. And so now we know literally the last tree. And I can show folks on Google Earth. I can be like, you've all seen a tree, right? Well, this is the last one. And so we have this point that we can go back to and say, the globe is on the move. You know, the globe is changing. And it's got a, it's got a nice visceral locality to it also from yeah. a storytelling point of view. I mean, it's almost like you're setting this baseline, like you really are saying, this is where we are now. Let's see where we are, you know, soon, right? That's um, exactly it. And I hope that baseline gets revisited, you know, past my time. You know, now that we know where it cool. is, it's no longer limited to one study. You know, 50 years from now, some enterprising young kid today can can take an expedition down there and see what's happened. This big question in my head is, how did you even know where to look for this tree? Where did you start? <laughs> This it, this was sort of an Indiana Jones-esque expedition to begin with. There was a lot of um, digging up of old maps, reports from the 1700s and the 1800s of explorations in the sub-Antarctic islands, and then more recent work in the 40s and 50s. So there was a lot of archive diving and looking through old um, documentation to essentially rule out all the sub-Antarctic islands further south. So I started in Antarctica and essentially worked my way north saying, well, this island is covered with glaciers, so that one's out, you know, <laughs> and, and this island is covered, uh, you know, has someone's been there and it's nothing but grass, so this island's out. So were you and using satellites and things like that to uh, to figure this out? Satellites? satellites helped. Satellites could sort of narrow the range, but once you get to these areas where the trees are really sparse and only in protected areas, they don't, they're not as useful anymore because you don't have the level of detail at such a high latitude. Um, that you need. So satellites could help in ruling out some of the islands, you know, if it's all covered in snow. Um, but they weren't useful in getting to the final island. That actually came with this breakthrough I found in a, in a Spanish language journal. It's published in so Southern South America only, where one guy in the early 1980s had been to the island and reported finding trees. Because several other people had been there over, over the last several centuries and not said anything about trees. And so huh. we were able, or I was able to find, um, this guy's name is Pisano, uh, had visited about 40 years ago and said, no, no, there's a tree there. So we're like, well, uh, that's probably our spot. Uh, and so that's when uh, we were able to organize the expedition. So do you have a newfound respect for the botanists and sailors who who did this work in the 19th century being down there at the Cape? Oh my gosh, you have, it's unreal how, how intense uh, the landscape is. You, you're standing on this island and you're camping on this island. And you really get the feeling that you're just a bug on the bottom of a river. You know, like like all the action is happening above you, just constantly rushing over you. You feel like if you stand up too tall, you're just going to blow blow into the ocean. The idea of doing it in a sailing ship is insane. I mean, it's it's very, very impressive. The list of people that have explored Gila Hornos is very, very small. And that's not due to lack of trying. Like Darwin wanted to go there. He sailed around that area. And hmm. despite being there for a while, could never actually land. Like many, many people tried to get to that island and couldn't, uh, or could only, or could only show up for a, for a moment or two, um, which is sort of the way. Real it is quickly, now. real quickly, in a couple of seconds, how quickly do you think you're going to see things changing based on this tree? Well, the thing that, that's changing down there more than wind is, or more than temperature is wind. So as climate change shifts wind patterns, what we'd expect to see is fairly rapid movement in the forest. Um, 
death in some places as winds shift direction and new forest growing um, as uh, as new areas become protected. So we expect to see pretty rapid growth, but also some movement in in where you find the trees. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Brian Buma is an associate professor of integrative biology at CU Denver. You're with CPR News and KRCC. We'll be right back. If you see a deer in Colorado, it's either the mule deer, sporting big ears, or the white-tailed deer, named for the color under the tail it holds high when running away. You'll find deer of both species across the state. But mule deer are concentrated in the mountains and along the western slope. Whitetails live mainly on the eastern plains. Muleys generally summer in the mountains, then, as food becomes scarce, move to lower elevation winter ranges. Out on the plains, though, the whitetails do not migrate, and it's said that one in every 30,000 fawns is an albino. White deer have a mythological place in many cultures. According to one Native American prophecy, when a pair of white deer appear, humankind is uniting. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. They'd done nothing wrong, and yet they were incarcerated. That sums up how the U.S. treated many Japanese Americans during World War II. Bob Fujigami of Lakewood was just 11 when his family was forced to leave their ranch in central California and report to the Amachi internment camp here in Colorado. The interview I did with him in 2018 is one of my memorable moments hosting Colorado Matters, and as the show marks 20 years on the air, we're listening back. It was the site of one of Colorado's darkest chapters, but for the longest time, the only thing you'd notice about Camp Amache was the wind. There were very few signs that thousands of Japanese Americans were kept here against their will during World War II, simply because they looked like the enemy. Slowly but surely, they've been trying to recreate Amache in southeastern Colorado so that the history isn't forgotten and they moved an old shed that once served as a recreation hall back to the site. This will be the fourth structure now, I believe, three of which were reconstructed, so this will be the first uh, original structure in its entirety to return to the site. These structures are one way to experience Amache. Another is through the stories of 88-year-old Bob Fuchigami. He's going to tell us about the three and a half years he spent without his freedom, he was just 11 when his family was forced to leave their ranch in central California and report to an assembly center. Can you help with that? Yeah. Here. Let me, uh... Pulling out a large binder filled with photos and documents about Amache, Fujigami shows me a copy of an official order. It forced him, his family, and anyone of Japanese descent to, quote, be evacuated from the West Coast following the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So what was it like the day that you had to leave your home? These kinds of orders. Uh, it says Civilian Exclusion yeah, Order Number 5. Yeah, right, exclusion. This happens to be one of the people in San Francisco, but we had one for Sutter County where we lived. And it's almost like you'd post that on a, on a wall or yeah, something. Yeah, they put them on the you know, telephone poles and things like that. But they told us... What we needed to do, they, they gave us uh, 
well, it was about six days to get rid of everything. And they said, you must do this. And it lists things. It says you must... Only what you could carry. Yeah. Extra clothes, toiletries, and you carry that with you to this, this center. Yeah, to the train station. Fuchigami left his home with almost nothing. But the one thing he couldn't leave behind... Was a bag of marbles. I mean, what else can you carry? Uh, maybe a baseball mitt and the rest of the clothing. Because you don't know how long you're going to be there, you know, whether they'll have any stores or anything where you can buy anything. They gathered in their own churches and schools, and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. Government agencies helped in a hundred ways. They helped the evacuees find tenants for their farms. They helped businessmen lease, sell, or store their property. Now, this aid was financed by the government, but quick disposal of property often involved financial sacrifice for the evacuees. This propaganda film produced by the U.S. military painted a rosy picture of the so-called Japanese relocation, but the reality was very different. The Fuchigami family made a hasty deal with a local high school teacher to watch over their farm, and they were forced to include a very attractive option to buy. What are you going to do in five days? You've got a ranch with a farm equipment, and, you know, you got trucks and cars. And he made so much money the first year, he bought it. He exercises the arrangement. And so we lost everything. I mean, yeah, we lost everything. Fuchigami spent four months at the California Assembly Center before boarding a train, but his parents and seven siblings had no idea where it was headed. You have to be shuttered the windows, you know, the blinds type of thing. They were closed. Yeah, well, and they had guards on there on the the train, and they would enforce that. I mean, uh, I peeked out one time anyway. I think I looked out another time, it was in Barstow, and uh, the rest of the time, I mean, they, they kept the things closed, I guess, to whoever was on the other trains heading the other direction wouldn't see who was in there, in the trains. They, they didn't want the public to know what they were doing to us. And because they had so little to go on, every time the train stopped, they held their breath. They let us off the train, and, you know, it was in the middle of that desert somewhere in Arizona, I think, it was. It was almost like a potty break. We didn't know why they stopped, but some people thought they were going to get shot, you know. They didn't know why we were stopped out there. Only people with the guns were the armed guards. More than 7,500 Japanese Americans were detained at Amache, living on one square mile surrounded by barbed wire fences and guard towers manned by military police. They were housed in 29 blocks with around 250 people per block. When Fuchigami arrived, his family's small room was bare, with only cots, nothing like home. The only thing uh, they had was uh, uh, one light bulb hanging down. They had a... they had a little stove in the corner. The floor was one one layer of brick on the sand. You know, you lift up the brick, and there, you know, it's, it's a sandy soil. And 
because we didn't have any water in the in the in the rooms, you had to come and use uh, the latrine. And when they had the latrines, they just had these stools, and there was no partition walls or anything. And the women were were really appalled and just under a great deal of distress because of that kind of a situation. They finally convinced the management to put in some partitions, half partitions. Despite the conditions, they tried to have a normal life. They formed social clubs and sports leagues, and there were stores and even a newspaper. The government did provide some education, but for Fuchigami... I joined the Boy Scouts. What do you do inside of a camp? You, we ended up doing a lot of marching, learning how to march you know, back and forth. Signs of their incarceration were all around. They have these searchlights on the guard towers, and at night, you know, they, just, they have random searches. They see somebody, they shine it on you, and they follow you. Know, you just go to the bathroom. You just follow you to the bathroom, you know. The reason they chose Amachi was it's remote. And if you try to escape, where the heck would you go? And because we looked like the enemy, although we weren't the enemy, we all knew we, you know, we, we hadn't done anything, but the public didn't know. And once we put it into the, into the camps, they said, oh, they, they must have really done something wrong to be put in something like that. And so the public was really misguided. You know. Families detained at Amache longed for things they left behind, like family heirlooms. And eventually the government allowed in limited shipments, and Fujigami's mother jumped at the chance. Mom had the trunk from uh, when she came from Japan, and she had put in her valuables, you know, kimonos and stuff. And Mom said she wanted to have some of her things from the trunk. And so we, we had the chip to us, and when it arrived, it had been broken into, and contents were gone, and, uh, you know, I think that really broke her heart, and she had a stroke in the camp, and uh, she did recover a little bit, but took a long time. Eventually, the government's detention order was lifted, and Japanese Americans were allowed to return home. However, some faced violence, hostility, and burned or looted homes. The final small group remaining at Amache left in October of 1945, with only $25 in their pockets and a one-way train ticket home. At age 15, three and a half years behind barbed wire fences and imposing guard towers, Fuchigami and his family left Amache. I'm sure I've got something. Today, Fuchigami lives at a Lakewood retirement community with his wife, Sally. Their small apartment is lined with bookshelves full of binders on Amache and other incarceration sites around the U.S., Pulling one of the binders from the shelf, Fujigame shows me his family photos taken after the war. Oh, look at that. That's when I was a kid. Yeah. My father and mother, and... One of them, an official Navy photo, and a photo of the ship he served on during the Korean War, 
serving a country that had in so many ways taken much of his childhood. The ship I sailed on. Oh, yeah. This is the ship I sailed on. It says so. The Nelson M. Walker. Yeah. Yeah. Kuchigami now gives talks on his time at Amache, and he remembers a question that came from a young black soldier who'd served in the military after 9-11. He said, why in the world, why would you join the Navy after the way they treated you and all that? And I said, that's a really good question. This is the only country I have. I mean, it's, it's my country. You know, it's just like it's your country, you know. Why would you go off and join the military after the way the you know, blacks have been treated? People of color have all been treated badly, whether you're talking about Indians or blacks or Mexican or Japanese or Chinese or whatever. If you're not white, you get treated differently at different times. Sitting in his living room with a book he'd love to publish someday, Fuchigami says the story of Japanese-American incarceration during World War II is as important as ever. There's been a lot of interest now because people from Iran or Muslims or, you know, we look at that and we say, hey, that's what they did to us. They target certain populations. So we've, we've, well, we've tried to say, hey, you can't do that to them. You did that to us, but now we know better. Bob Fuchigami of Lakewood was 88 years old when we spoke in 2018. There's a push in Congress to preserve Amache as part of the national park system. Fuchigami testified in support of that measure in April. He said it will help ensure Amache, quote, is protected, preserved, and interpreted for future generations. We listen back to that profile as our show marks two decades. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel in Newcastle. With special thanks to Nell London, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.